Welcome to Bloomberg BNA's Tax and Accounting Podcast, Talking Tax. I'm your host, Allie Bursprell. In this episode, we'll talk about wealth planning with private equity and hedge fund interest, why it's something you may want to consider, and some of the pitfalls to avoid. Here with me today, I have Todd Ankatavinich and David Stein from Withers Bergman, who have co-authored a portfolio on this topic for Bloomberg BNA. David, thanks for being here today. Thanks, Allie. Thanks very much, Allie. All right, let's get started. So I wanted to kick this podcast off by having both of you discuss what made you decide to write this portfolio. Well, thanks very much, Allie, for having us. This has been sort of an ongoing labor of love, I guess you'd say. Uh, and it started out really from, you know, when people started getting involved with carried interest transfer planning, maybe about 10 plus years ago or so. Early on, there really was not a lot of written material uh, on this. And I still remember a, a friend of mine at one point saying, look, you know, can you walk me through where I can find this vertical slice uh, in the code and the regs? I'm going through it. I don't see the term anywhere. And it was just a really good impetus for kind of giving us some, some idea about starting to create some, you know, definitive piece on this. And it just really kind of evolved over the years. We eventually just kind of said, you know, let's let's try to put all these ideas down on paper and get them in some kind of materials that people can can look to as sort of the go-to piece for this planning. And I would just briefly add, um, you know, one of the things that makes this planning unusually challenging is it involves many different disciplines. It's not you have to be aware of structures of, of funds, income tax issues, securities law issues, and, and other aspects beyond the, the you know, 2701 and, and gift tax planning itself. So we were trying to, with this portfolio, create uh, a reference that could look across these different areas as opposed to just be focusing on one code section by itself. Excellent. So next, why don't we describe for our listeners exactly what carried interest planning is? Uh, sure. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll feel that. I mean, I think the first part of that answer is what is carried interest. And, you know, I think it's important to set that context first. So when we talk about carried interest, what we're really talking about is in a fund structure, uh, pooled investment vehicle structure, a uh, a share of the profits that is taken by the managers or sponsors of that structure as compensation, in a sense, for the work that they're doing to, um, to to generate profits for investors. It's not always referred to in documents as carried interest. It can be uh, referred to as an incentive allocation and promote in, in real estate structures, um, an override. There are many, many terms that pick up what we're calling carried interest in the portfolio, um, or carry for short. And uh, so that's that's what we're talking about um, in terms of the planning. And the planning itself is generally going to involve transferring some or all of that that carried interest that's owned by a fund principal into a trust vehicle uh, for the benefit of other family members. Okay. And can you tell us, you know, when should planners consider planning with fund interests? You know, what are the benefits and how is this different from other wealth transfer planning strategies? Well, I, I think, great great question. I, I think one way to look at carried interest transfer planning is that it's one sort of flavor of your typical wealth transfer planning freeze transaction 
but with a lot of additional sort of specialized issues that get layered on top. The name of the game generally with any kind of wealth transfer freeze planning is to try to, you know, take an asset that has appreciation potential and transfer it out of, let's say, mom or dad's name before that appreciation happens and hopefully get it into some kind of trust structure, ideally in a way that's going to be able to be preserved and grow for multiple generations in a tax-efficient manner. Now, that's not specific to carry planning, right? That that can be done with, with any kind of uh, family asset that has that appreciation potential. But because the best kind of asset to use for this kind of wealth transfer freeze planning are assets that have the most appreciation potential, that overlaps very nicely with the idea of carried interest, like David was talking about. Carried interest, obviously, because it sort of has the supercharged appreciation potential, makes it a very attractive kind of asset to think about for carry planning. Now, where carry planning gets more unique and more specific is that there's this whole additional uh, area of the law that layers on top of this with additional unique issues under Chapter 14 of the Code and additional um, tax and other issues that need to be taken into consideration that probably are issues that won't typically uh, apply when you're doing transfer planning with other types of assets. So I like to think of this as, you know, this is traditional wealth transfer freeze planning with additional complexity that uh, needs to be layered on top of it. And there are a lot of pitfalls that need to be navigated, obviously, which we'll get into. So let's drive down into the tax code section that applies here. You were discussing Chapter 14. Can you talk about the specific statute that applies and why it exists? Sure. Um, so it's, uh, it's Section 2701, which is part of Chapter 14. I think it's uh, important to say in this context that 2701 and Chapter 14 more broadly you know, did not come into the code for purposes of picking up carried interest planning. And in fact, if you go back and look at legislative history uh, around Chapter 14, you won't really find references to hedge funds and private equity funds and carried interest structures. That's not what this section or or this chapter were uh, about and what they were targeting. The context for Chapter 14 really was about family-owned businesses and family-owned investment vehicles and a concern, you know, based on perceived abuses that have been observed in over years, that senior generations of family members would take advantage of family-owned vehicles to improperly try to shift value and shift appreciation, like we were just talking about, to uh, younger generations and to do so in a way that was kind of non-economic and therefore considered abusive. The, the classic example would be a situation where a family company was capitalized with common interests and preferred interests, and the preferred interests would be kind of enhanced with all sorts of rights that were in many cases discretionary rights and that had potentially tremendous amounts of value. And the the position that the family took was that these preferred interests were highly valuable because they had rights to, you know, to, to dividends and other economic interests in the company. And that the, as a result, the common interests weren't worth very much. The parents would then turn around and gift those low-value common interests to trust structures. 
retaining the ostensibly high-value preferred interest. But in fact, over time, they wouldn't exercise any of the rights inherent in those interests that, that made them high value in the first place. And so all the value of the company would end up in the common interests that had been given away. And so what, what 2701 tries to do is to look at structures where there are different classes of interests, like that paradigm of the common and preferred interests, and create a valuation rule that essentially says that if you have a multi-class structure where there's control and different generations of family involved, and if you're gifting one class of interest to a younger generation and keeping another class of interest for yourself, that if certain safeguards are not put in place, the piece that you've kept for yourself will be valued at zero. And as a result, uh, 100% of the value of your interest will be deemed to have gone to the younger generation with uh, obviously very significant gift tax implications as a result of that. I think that leads nicely into the next topic I wanted to discuss with you. Can you explain some of the pitfalls practitioners can run into under Section 2701? Sure. Well, well, 2701, you know, has a lot of moving pieces and there's different layers of complexity. I think that the one thing just to kind of follow up on what David was saying was that, you know, 2701 was never designed to apply with respect to carried interest transactions, and you won't see that anywhere in the legislative history. But I think what David was explaining kind of illustrates that what Congress was trying to achieve was a prohibition of a, of a perceived abuse. But in doing so, they, they essentially tried to, you know, swat a fly with a, a cinder block. And because of that, some of the provisions of the code are very broad in their application and can pull into this deemed gift tax rule certain transactions that really had no consistency with the policy policy rationale behind it. And that's what we have here when we're transferring carried interest. Now, there are a lot of definitions, and Chapter 14 and 2701 specifically can certainly be implicated or there's a risk of it with carried interest transfer planning, but it can apply in different situations to profits, interests, preferred partnerships, and things like that. There are a number of definitions that you need to work through, but the base rule is essentially that, well, if you make a transfer, and a transfer includes a lot of things. It includes a traditional transfer. I make a gift to my child. Uh, but it also includes things like recapitalizing, restructuring the equity of a company, initial capital contributions. So if I do one of these transfers, and as a result of one of these transfers, my younger generation family members generally receive one class of equity interest, and I receive another one, then I have what's called a distribution right. And a distribution right is sort of like the, the tainted uh, type of right that's going to be problematic from a gift tax standpoint. Now, there are certain exceptions that can come into play there, the most notable of which are, you know, if I take back an interest that is either the same class as what I've transferred to my child, that's generally not going to be a problem. That's one reason why you don't tend to have 2701 problems with, say, a family limited partnership where it's all the same economic class. Or if I've taken back something that's a subordinate interest, so if my kids take back this be a preferred or a priority interest, then that's not going to be a problem too, generally. But one of the reasons why it's so complex is that, you know, some of these rules are not so intuitive. So as this applies to the case of carried interest transfer planning, let's say, as we were talking about before, the carried interest 
um, it's usually held in the general partner. And if I had my druthers, I would want to just transfer out my general partner interest out to the kids because that's the thing that has the most appreciation potential. Usually, uh, a fund principal will also own interest in other entities, such as limited partnership interest in the in the fund itself. And a lot of times, they have a significant amount of capital invested there as part of their kind of skin in the game. And so if I were to just make a transfer of my general partner interest with the carry only and not make a transfer of my limited partnership interest, that's where these rules get implicated because I've held on to my limited partner interest. That's going to be considered a distribution right, which is a right to receive distributions with respect to an equity interest. And because I've transferred down the other interest, in this case, the carry interest down to my kids, now I've potentially triggered a big deemed gift under Section 2701. There are exceptions to it, but beyond that sort of initial level of complexity, there's further complexity with things called the attribution rules. The attribution rules say, well, for purposes of determining who owns what, so you can determine if you have a 2701 problem or not, you've got to look through things like interests held within a corporation or a partnership or very commonly we'll see interests that are held in a trust. And you need to dig down, and there are these attribution rules that can get quite hairy um, when you're doing your analysis. And sometimes you have different attribution rules that layer on top of each other. And then you have to look to certain tiebreaker rules to get through that. But that kind of gives you some context of why things get so complicated in a hurry, despite the fact that what we're trying to achieve is relatively uh, straightforward uh, in concept, at least. Well, and I know in your portfolio, you talk a lot about pitfalls that exist outside of Section 2701. Can you discuss some of those pitfalls for our audience as well? Sure. Um, and that's that's an important point for this planning, because understanding 2701 is complex enough in and of itself, but there are a tremendous number of traps for the unwary outside of 2701 when you're doing this kind of planning. One of the first things that we uh, encounter is the question of valuation, which we touched on a bit earlier. But oftentimes, you know, clients will come to us and say, I'm starting a new fund and I want to transfer the carried interest. And uh, it's not worth anything yet because we haven't, haven't really started making investments or the investments haven't appreciated yet. And so we have to have a somewhat difficult discussion to explain that under the code, you know, the question of the value of, uh, of of a piece of property is not quite so mechanical, and it's really the question of what would a willing buyer and a willing seller uh, at what at what price would they transact uh, for that piece of property? And we usually break the logjam by suggesting to the client that if they think their carried interest is worth zero, we'd be happy to pay them twenty dollars for it today. They quickly sort of the point that you know it's not worth it's worth more than twenty dollars or a hundred dollars or a thousand dollars there's there's some real value there and we need to work with valuation professionals to um, establish a value for it in a way that um, is defensible if somebody comes and wants to challenge it later so that's that's an important thing that we always have to keep in mind another big non-2701 pitfall here are Kind of structural considerations within the fund itself. We talk about fund structures and transferring the carry, you know, and for purposes of this discussion, we're kind of envisioning one fund entity with one general partner entity and a bunch of investors. But 
in a typical fund that's um, built up for you know sophisticated planning, you may find that in order to transfer the principal's interest to a trust, we might be transferring five or six different entities because of the way the economics flow. And so it becomes important for a planner here not to just understand the code, but to be able to look at and pull apart and understand the economic relationships between and among the different fund entities. That uh, can also then in turn implicate the securities laws because you are in many cases going to be dealing with regulated entities and you may have a trust or other recipient to whom you want to make a transfer. That person may or may not be legally able to receive that interest under applicable securities laws uh, without, you know, violating or, or blowing up an exemption that the fund is relying upon. Uh, so we certainly don't want the tax tail to wag the dog here and cause a fundamental problem for the fund itself. So we are about out of time. I just wanted to ask both of you, do you have any last thoughts? I know going forward, there's been a lot of talk on Capitol Hill about potential changes to carried interest in tax reform. And I wanted to ask, does this have the potential to impact this planning strategy at all? You know, why or why not? And then any of your other thoughts would be great to wrap this up. I'll take the carry point. I mean, in the first instance, you know, the carried interest reform that's been talked about um, and proposed um, is really about reforming the income tax treatment of carried interest and making it look more like compensation as opposed to a a share of profits. So on its face, that would not appear to have any any real direct impact on this sort of planning. But I think, you know, it's too early to make that call because one of the things that, that might happen if carry reform were to go through on the income tax side is that we might see funds and their principals start to restructure the way carried interest economics are delivered within the structure. And if that does happen, if, for example, people say, well, there's no uh, no benefit to treating it as a profits interest anymore, we might as well just turn it into a fee, that could have implications on this planning. In some ways, it could make, it, make this planning more difficult because the carried interest might take a form that is harder to transfer. On the other hand, it could make some of these technical points go away because the, the carried interest might then be fairly clearly not an interest in the fund, but rather a separate fee stream. So I think it's it's all pretty speculative, speculative at this point, but and too early to call. But I think if if that does go through, it wouldn't likely have an immediate impact, but uh, could well have have some impact, positive or negative, over time. I guess the the only thing I would say is with respect to you know the idea of, of tax reform. You know we've seen different proposals over the years and things kind of come and go. Obviously, you know, earlier in the year that the idea of repeal of the estate tax was something that was uh, being talked about. I think interesting to note was that very few of those proposals involved the repeal of the gift tax, and 2701 indeed is a gift tax provision. So to the extent that there was a repeal of the estate tax, all of these issues, unless there were some major changes, would still be things that would need to be navigated. And I think you could have a situation in which people would be lulled into a false sense of security that, well, the estate tax is gone, all this stuff is irrelevant now to, to try to have to navigate that. And if the gift tax were still in place, that would be a big mistake. The other thing, and I think more importantly, is that the idea of 
estate tax repeal, a permanent repeal, it's only as permanent as it is until the laws change. And I think for many of the people that we do this planning for, they're often in their 30s or 40s or 50s, and they've got life expectancies of 40 or 50 years to go yet. I think it would be a very dangerous proposition to try to plan based upon a presumption that the law is going to be something in 40 or 50 years' time. So, you know, even if you did have repeal for some period of time, I think you're still going to see planning moving ahead. I think those are some great forward-looking thoughts to end the discussion on. We'll have to see where tax reform goes. Thank you both for joining me. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. it. All right. And this has been Bloomberg BNA's Talking Tax with Ali Versprill. Thank you so much for joining us today. Tune in next time to hear more about Bloomberg BNA's portfolios and receive updates on issues surrounding tax policy 